Hey, welcome to Bible study, everybody. Good to see you tonight. Glad you're here. Sid, welcome. Yep. See, Don? Just as a word of warning to any of our listeners, I'm in a chatty mood tonight. So, uh, engaging in a little chit chat before uh, we start recording. Let's pray. Let's get started. Father, thanks for. Being here, thank you, God, for this opportunity to meet. We ask that you'd lead us and guide us. We pray for your Holy Spirit to uh, really just light things up tonight. I, I pray that there'd be some things that are said tonight, some things that we're able to receive that would just light some things up in our hearts, our minds, and our spirits. And I do pray for some lights to come on in our spirits tonight. I pray that we'd be engaged, and I pray, Father, that there'd be something that would happen, some change, some revelation, some understanding, something to make a difference in our lives. Uh, we ask you to be glorified. We ask you to lead us and guide us. We ask you to empower what we do tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you have your Bibles, let's open to Job. Back to Job. Chapter 38. This may be our last Bible study in Job as we're moving on. I say maybe, because I think I saw it was our last Bible study in Job, but I'm not positive. I'm pretty sure, though. Job chapter 38. As you're turning there, just a quick reminder, if you'd like to participate in Bible study, and you are AFAR, uh, you can go to the website, www.speakpipe.com, slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. And toggle the button there, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And it could be a question, a comment. It could just be saying hi. Nothing fancy. Just uh, whatever you want to say. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, even if you have already contacted us or said hi before, we'd love to hear from you again. Uh, we just uh, want to keep connected with the people that are listening. So if you have anything, something you want to share, or even just a hello, you want to just tell us where you're from, we'd love to hear that. Uh, Go on to that website and leave us a message. Job chapter 38, verses 1 and 2. May I have a volunteer read that, please? All right, thanks for reading that. A couple things about this. One is God is speaking out of the storm and uh, that this was a verse that I knew when I was a really really little kid but I didn't know I knew this verse but I knew it because the people that would watch me and my family that would watch me they would quote this verse and they would say something like out of the storm the Lord speaks and so what would happen would be that uh, every time there was a thunderstorm, we would all have to sit quietly with the lights off. And I, I don't know if this was some kind of just a ploy to get us to quiet down, or they really this was something that was really something that was a, uh, a superstition in the area where I grew up. But uh, anytime there'd be a thunderstorm, all the children, it didn't matter where we were or what we were doing, it was daycare and even in school, early school, if, if there was a thunderstorm, we would all kind of gather around in the middle of the room with the lights off and sit quietly. 
Because out of the storm, the Lord speaks. Now, I can honestly say that during those times, as a small child sitting in the room with the lights off in the thunderstorm, I never heard the Lord speak. I can say that. But uh, we were there ready, just in case. He wanted to speak. He wouldn't be drowned out by us goofing off. So we quietly sat there, obediently sat there, and listened. So, like I said, I don't know if that was a superstition where I grew up. Anybody here ever hear of that or ever participate in something like that? We never did that, but uh, <laughs> but I mean, like this was this was common practice. I mean, I every kid I knew that that's what they did because we were all in school together, and we were all in daycare together, and we were all you know if we were at somebody's house, the same thing would happen. So it was some kind of superstition or something in the area where I grew up. Anyway, uh, so from the very early times, I, I had. Um, an understanding of this verse without even knowing it, at least some rudimentary, weird, superstitious understanding of it without even knowing it. And, and so the idea here was that there was in the midst of a storm or a tempest. A tempest is a good word, uh, but the word tempest, at least as it's used in the Hebrew, uh, the idea of the tempest is a place of trouble. And so it's a place of trouble, it's a place of tumult, it's a place of sorrow. And so you start thinking about the storm in those kind of terms because really you know, the root words and the literal meaning of most of the words that are used here are revolving around the idea of trouble and tumult and, and sorrow. And so out of the midst of those things, God speaks. Now, and, and so I want you to begin to, to reprogram your brain a little bit. Because I think sometimes we think of things a certain way that just aren't true. It's, it might not be true. And, and so because of that, we need to reprogram things. We need to think of things differently. And why do I say that? I say that because that's the way God works. Uh, and to me, this is self-evident, but... The more I talk to people, the more I realize it's not so self-evident for everybody. And so I just want to say this out loud because it, it, it's apparent that we, we don't think in these terms, but when Jesus announced the kingdom, but even before Jesus announced the kingdom, you look into the Old Testament and you look at things that the prophets used to say and do. You look at things that the, uh, the patriarchs sometimes would say and do. You look at things that David would say and do, some of the things that are mentioned in the Psalms, some of the things that are mentioned throughout the Old Testament, you begin to see a pattern that things don't always go the way you think they're going to. And there's a reason for that. And that is that God doesn't do things according to what we think he's going to do. Uh, that's his prerogative. He doesn't have to follow our ideas about what, how things are supposed to go. He doesn't have to follow our ideas about how things are programmed in our world to go because he does what he does. And so as we come into a place in our lives where we, we want to get closer to him, we come to a place in our lives where we want to really understand him and come into a relationship with him, there comes a point where he calls us alongside of him to begin to understand him and to be under, understand his ways, which are not necessarily and are most likely not 
our ways. So, think about the kingdom. Think about some of the things that Jesus taught. There were things that Jesus taught that were diametrically opposed to the way people think. They're diametrically opposed to the way we think. There are things that Jesus said. Say, well, this is how the, the kingdom works. This is how it works if, if you want to understand me. You want to understand how things are. You know, so, so what do you need, uh, for example, what do you need to move a mountain? You need a faith, right? So, so you want the biggest possible seed of faith to move a mountain, right? Be, right, because it's, it's huge. The mountain's big, right? And so we need a big seed, and if we have a big enough seed of faith, then we can move that mountain. Well, that's not the way it goes. In fact, he said, if you have faith even as a grain of a mustard seed, in other words, the smallest of seeds, the smallest of seed of faith will move a mountain. Not the biggest seed, the smallest seed. But that doesn't make any sense. All right? That doesn't make any sense in our brains. Because if, if you want to, if you want to, you know, knock down a big wall, you need a big hammer, okay? And you take a big enough hammer, you knock down a wall, and, and it makes it easier because it's heavier. You can swing it, and you can move things out, and that's the way it is. Well, that that's not how the kingdom works. That's how we work. That's how we work by the sweat of our brow. That's how we work under the curse. And you see the curse. Think about what a curse is. What's a curse? It's, it's not a blessing, right? A curse is, is not a blessing. It's a bad thing. And so we were cursed to work by what? The sweat of our brow. Right. So, hmm? And toil. And so we're going to toil by the sweat of our brow. We're going to work by the sweat of our brow. So you think about that. And you think that, okay, that's part of the curse. Why would that apply to how God does things? Why? Right, and it doesn't. And so if we're going to move into what God has, we're going to move into an understanding of who he is and how he does things, we have to think differently. We can't live under the curse all right, follow this. We can't live under the curse and apply the curse principles to the kingdom and to God. Because he doesn't live under the curse. He doesn't operate under the curse. He operates as God operates. And so Jesus is ushering in the kingdom and he's given us all of these, these wonderful and awesome ways of doing things that make absolutely no sense to the sweat of our brow. So we make a choice. The easiest choice is just to continue to toil away. That's the easiest choice. Why? Because that's what we've been doing. Then that's the curse. And that's what our forefathers did. That's what the people who've come before us did. That's what the people who, many of the people that we know, we love, respect are doing. And they're toiling away. And the sweat of their brow. And, and I, I want you to think about that for a second. Just because it's the easiest, just because it is the most familiar way, doesn't mean it's the best way. And so we have an example of that here, that God speaks. But he speaks out of the midst 
of trouble. He speaks out of the midst of a storm of sorrow. And, and I think sometimes we have in our head, or we have some parameter about, okay, well, God speaks when? In this situation and in this time. But that's not true. And how can I say that when I didn't even give you any kind of a parameter to it? I didn't even tell you. I, I didn't even make something up to tell you God speaks in this time and in this place. I just said this time and this place. How do I say it's not true? How do you do that? I didn't even define it. But the reason I know it's not true is because I cannot, I can't even begin to define when God speaks. All right? I can't. And so any place that I would pick and choose, it would be wrong. Because God speaks when God speaks. When does God speak to Job? He speaks to Job in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the whirlwind, in the midst of the tempest, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of sorrow, tumult, all these things going on in Job's life. That's when he speaks. It wasn't, that, was that the time Job wanted to hear from him? I don't know. He probably could have heard from him, what, 37 chapters ago? He had to listen to those, those guys talking to him? And all of his, his counseling that's going on? And him getting, you know, and, and just going through everything that he's going through and all the blame that he's, he's going through and all the rest of those kind of things and the argument and all the rest of that is happening. And, and, and then here right at the end, in the midst of all the storm, God speaks. Yeah. And you, and you can't even say, and I want you to think about this too, like why did I start talking about when I was a little kid? Well, because we'd sit down and listen in the middle of the storm. Why? Because it says God spoke in the middle of the storm, right? All right, so we're going to make that our doctrine. And so anytime there's lightning out and there's thunder, we'll all sit quietly and wait for God to speak. What do they call that religion? What's that? What do they call their religion? What religion? You know, what, the religion of sitting in a storm quietly while God speaks. <laughs> I have no idea. Miss Lottie's daycare, I tell you that. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> And she would whoop your butt if you didn't do it. So we did it. We did it. Because we were little and that was the way it went. And, and whoever else we were part of, you know, later on in, in the groups we'd be in. But for whatever superstition that arises, I mean, whatever thing that, that comes up, whatever we want to try to make some kind of hard and fast rule about, it's just not right. It's just not. And so... We, we limit God in one way or another by assigning him a time and place to speak. And so the, the very act of doing that is you can't. And so here they, they were, a dark, thick cloud. It had been a long time gathering. And, and literally the remaining argument and God's just going to speak to them for a little while here. If you read the end of Job, you understand what I'm saying. But he begins to ask Job questions, and he begins to, to really confront the people that are there. But the whole last argument in the book of Job, the whole last discussion, the whole last uh, speaking forth that God makes is mainly from our ignorance. Is what he, He's just drawing the conclusions He's saying, were you with me when I did this? Were you with me when I made that? Are you this? Are you that? Do you understand this? Do you see this? Do you have any idea what's going on there? All of these things, they're being drawn from our 
ignorance because there's so much we don't know. And those of you that have ever done any evangelism with us, any basic training of evangelism with us, one of the things that, one of the little tools we use is when you run across somebody, oh, I'm an atheist. Okay, well, you know, so, so based on what you know, you don't believe in God. Okay, well, how much do you not know? And, and, and so th- and then that becomes the real question. That's the same argument you have here. It's like, how much do you not know? Because what they did, what had happened here in the previous 36, 35 chapters is that these guys were speaking out of what they knew. They were saying, well, this is the way God does things. This is how God does it. And this is, this, it couldn't be that because God doesn't do things like that. And Job, you don't know what you're talking about, but this is how God is. And they had been drawing on their experiences and drawing on their knowledge and drawing on the stuff that they had learned. Now remember, when we started this, they don't have a Bible. All right? They don't have a written record that we know of. This is, all, this is all an experiential religion that they were all a part of, an experiential faith that they were a part of. And it was being passed down, verbal traditions from generation to generation of people that were worshiping God and they were finding God on their own. I mean, we're way back in Genesis, what, 4 or 5, when Job is. So they're, they're the patriarchs, all that. It just, there was no history like that. And so God confronts him and says, well, what do you really know? And that's really a good question for people. It's a good question for people sometimes to think about, what don't you know? There's a lot we don't know. We pride ourselves on what we do know. We pride ourselves on what we've learned. We pride ourselves on our degrees. We pride ourselves on whatever it is that we have. But the fact of the matter is, there is a whole world of stuff out there that we just don't know. And our experiences, our education, all those things come into play. And some of us know some things that other people don't know. And other people know things that other people don't know. All right? I probably know some things that some of you don't know because I've been places that you've never been. And you know things that that I don't know because you've been places I've never been. And you've known people I've never known. And I've known people you've never known. And so we have all of these varying experiences and all of these things that I might know how to do certain things. I have certain skills that you don't have. Why? Because I did those things. But you've done things I haven't done. And so you have a whole bunch of skills probably I don't know how to do anything with. I just don't know. So so understanding that is an important step in our real maturity with one another and with God. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with understanding how much we don't know. In fact, it's healthy. It's good. You look at the stars in the sky. How many constellations do you know when you look in the sky? You know, a few, right? I might know a few, all right, but then Chris, poor Chris, he grew up in the southern hemisphere. His constellations are different than our constellations. So he's got constellations down there we don't know anything about. About the only constellation we would know from his hemisphere is the southern cross. That's about it. I don't know any other ones. Well, yeah, yeah. Only because of the song. 
but but Chris wouldn't know some of the ones you might know, like the Big Dipper. He might now because he lived in China or here or whatever. But, you know, and that's just one little thing. How many books have you read that I haven't read? How many books have I read that you haven't read? How many, how many like, classes have I taken you haven't taken? How many have you taken I haven't taken? I mean, it's just such a, a varied understanding of where we all came from. And so even in this group, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know that I don't know that you do know and that you don't know that I know. Now make that worldwide. Really. Begin to make that worldwide. And the accumulation of knowledge in all of the world and the accumulation of understanding in all of the world. Just, to, just something as simple as, as name the, the, you know, you start thinking about people who live on streets in Beijing. How many people, you know, addresses in Beijing? All right? How many millions of people is that? We don't know any of their addresses. Right? How about their phone numbers? I don't know any of their phone numbers. I don't. I mean, it's just so astounding, all the stuff we don't know. And it's okay. It's all right. Why am I harping on this? Why? We don't. But we also, we, we don't really understand what God's doing all the time either. Okay? It's okay. There's lots of stuff we don't know. Why, why, do, why do we think we're going to put God in our pocket? Why? We, we, can't e we can't even name an address in Beijing of one person out of millions. We can't name one phone number. How come God's in our pocket? How come we got the drop on God that, oh, he does it this way? He says it like that. Oh, he has to do this. Really? We got, we, got a, we got an infinite being that we're talking about here. An infinite being. And we got the drop on him. All right? Because when he doesn't do what we think he's supposed to do, we, we believe we have the right to be mad at him or upset at him. And yet we, we can't even... We, there's things about the person sitting next to you that they know you don't know. All right? Why am I harping on this? I'm harping on this is because we serve a big God and we're little. And it's okay that we don't know what he's doing all the time. It's okay that we don't know what he's thinking all the time. It's okay we don't know why certain things happen. It's okay that we don't understand how, why certain things take place the way that they do. It's all right. Because we don't have it figured out. We don't understand him. We just don't. And we got to leave room for that in our lives. It's all right. It's got to come into context somehow in our life that our ignorance is a fact of the matter. Somehow. God builds his whole statement on our ignorance when he starts to speak here. He, he, he goes on about all the stuff we don't know. And his conclusion is, then how do you presume to judge me? You can't. It's, it's impossible because we have no idea. Now, 
what do we know? We know how things affect us. What do we know? We know if things hurt. We know what do we know? We know if we have sorrow. Yeah, we know all that. Yeah, we get that. We know if we're happy. We know if we're sad. We know if we're hungry. There's certain basic stuff that we know about ourselves. But to us begin to assign blame. I mean, what was the first sin? Really? It, I mean, second sin, excuse me. What happened when God came and he's like, all right, what happened? Yeah, we've got to blame somebody. Yeah. And then, well, it was a double blame. The woman that you gave me. So you got blame on Eve and on God. Right? You got a double whammy. Like, you hear that, though? You got the double win. Why? We got to blame somebody. Why? Why? Why is everything got to be somebody else's fault? Because you know what most things are that affect you? Your fault. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it is not the cosmic universe giving you the finger. All right? It is you. It's me. All right? And, 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 and we don't have to blame somebody. See, this is part of the issue that goes on in Job. This is the big question that's happening in Job, is that they're trying to blame somebody, namely Job. All right? And I'm not trying to make the same mistake they're trying to make. All I'm trying to say is, is that not all the time, because it wasn't the case with Job, but lots of times there's no one to blame. You know who's to blame? Well, me. I made a bad decision. I chose poorly. I made a mistake. I sinned. I was selfish. I was ignorant. I didn't listen. I was prideful. I mean, how many, how many things could really be answered that way if we were honest about it? If we were just upfront about it and just said, okay, well, yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I, was, I was talking to somebody recently. They were recently diagnosed with uh, diabetes. And, and I know that the whole world wants to make diabetes some mystery, uh, mystery um, sickness that, that just comes on you somehow out of nowhere. Right? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, this guy weighs about 300 pounds. All right? It's not that big a mystery. It's just not. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that was the, the only conversation I had with the guy. I said, you have got to make some changes or you're going to die. Right? And before you die, you might just go blind. Or maybe they'll chop a foot off. But you got to make some decisions. And your kidneys will shut down. It's a long, drawn out, It's a horrible way to go. And I made sure to let him know, you know, that I was diagnosed with diabetes. I made sure to let him know, you know, that I've had to make some decisions, that I've made decisions in my life, hard decisions. But it's just the way it goes. So... 
So, I'm not going to blame the universe on that. And and I'm not going to be mean about it either, but I I just, you know, sometimes I don't know that we're doing anybody any favors by creating some mystery around why things happen to us. We're certainly not doing God any favor favors by just blaming him for everything either. It's easy. Adam did it. This woman that you gave me, in other words, her fault, your fault. Don't look at me. Right? Yeah. So I just wanna I wanna say that because I, I think sometimes this is our tendency. It's part of the original sin. It's part of that, that, that seed of sin that is passed down that, that Jesus came to relieve us of. And until we find a place in our life where we're really, and, and I mean this, that we're really living a born-again life, born-of-the-spirit life, we're going to fight that tendency a lot, a lot. And we have to be careful with that. Because, you know, if you can really take responsibility for something, do you know you can change? And the whole situation can be affected then? Yeah. But if you blame somebody else, then everything's outside of your control. Everything. Okay. Well, this might make it inconsequential, but what are the reasons why someone would put the blame elsewhere? What is it that they're trying to well, you're talking about emotionally or spiritually? Spiritually, I guess. Well, well, I just go back to the first question. Why did Adam deflect from himself? Well, he was terrified. He was afraid. He was afraid of what God was going to do. And so he blamed God. Smart? <laughs> Right, right, but somehow he was blinded. How strong is that? How strong is fear? Right. Fear is huge. It's very, very strong. To the point that even a close relationship, a close relationship can be discounted when fear takes over. I mean, God had come looking for him in the cool of the day. That's what he does. He was walking and... And notice he knew what had happened, even in that story, but he still asked them. He gently approached it, but he was still so afraid that he 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 blamed somebody else. I'm thinking. Go ahead. So, so this is this leading to a point, I, and I'm getting way, I'm kind of getting off of what I, I wanted to be, but I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this point. Think about Job's friends. Why were they blaming him? 
people? Why did they need to do that? What were they afraid of? That it might happen to them, <laughs> right? Right, that it might happen to them. Yeah, so their fear of, of the same thing happening to them made, made it so imperative they made sure that it was his fault, okay? okay and then I just turned this thing around a little bit, but do you understand what I'm saying, that, that fear drove that? Now, here's the other part of this, what Dave was saying. It's like, you're either going to live, we're going to make a decision, and we're going to live either a courageous life, or we're, or we're going to live a life of fear, okay? And you need to make that decision. And I know it sounds like, oh, well, you can't make that decision about everything. Well, yeah, you can, actually. Yeah, you can, and then every situation that comes up, you're going to make smaller decisions during those situations when they do come up. But you make a decision about how you want to live. Like, am I going to live like, like the, the, the man or the woman that God's called me to live? You know, a, a life of courage, a life of boldness? Am I going to live a life that's out there and doing it? Or am I going to live a life of fear and of being a victim all the time? How am I going to live? And I suppose in our culture, we've just kind of made it cool to be a victim, but it's not. It's just not. And somehow we've got to rise above that. Somehow we've got to make a better decision. Somehow we've got to make a bigger decision for our own lives that I'm not going to live that way. I'm just not. I'm not going to live afraid of everything. I'm not going to live afraid to, to take responsibility. I'm not going to live afraid to change or anything like that. I'm going, to, I'm going to rise up. And you know what? Situations are going to come up that are not going to go my way. But I'm going to take the responsibility I need to take in those situations. I'm going to make the change that I need to make. And I'm going to move on. And that's it. Because as Dave was saying, you want to live as a victim. You want to live in fear. What changes? Nothing. Why? Because it doesn't need to. It's somebody else's fault. It's beyond my control. I can't help it. Okay, well. And I hope somehow this, and I hope somehow this will speak to us, because I know God is calling us to, to rise out of that whole idea of being victims. I know it. I know God is calling us to a life of courage. I know He is. It would be courageous to, to, to live fully. The question is being asked here when, when God makes this uh, statement and he, he begins to build his argument on our ignorance. Here's the question that's being asked. It's like, this is a, who do you think you are? And it's really a good question. Who do you think you are? And, and you may have an answer to that. You may, have an an, you may have a fairly good answer to who you think you are. But here's the rest of that question. Who do you think you are to disagree with God? I'll share another story from my childhood. I was in school, and uh, in particular in school, some of my strong points were in the sciences and mathematics. And so as I went through school, I took a particular interest in that to the point that I took every class I could, every class they would let me take, in high school and in, in leading up to high school 
in those areas because I was just super interested. I would read books and do whatever I could to learn as much as I could. And I can remember even at a younger age, I was probably, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 years old. I was, uh, I was uh, outside one night and I was with my grandfather down in South Carolina. And I was living somewhere else, but I would go there for the summers. And there was an eclipse or something, a lunar eclipse, I think. And so we had a bucket of water out, and we were going to watch the eclipse in the bucket of water. And he began to explain to me something about stars and something about uh, the sun or, or the moon or something. I don't remember specifically. And as he was explaining it, I knew it wasn't right, and so I corrected him. And he was very gracious toward me, and he just said, okay, well, all right then. And we moved on with the conversation, but I'll never forget how I felt that night. And I made a decision that night that I would not do that again. Even if I knew or I believed that I was right and that he was wrong, I would not say anything. And I would listen to what he had to say. And because uh, I never want to feel that way again. And I can't explain how I felt. I can't tell you exactly what that was, but I didn't want that. And so the rest of his life, the rest of our life together, I went on, you know, of course I went through high school, I went on to college, whatever, as long as, you know, I was down there, as long as we were on the phone, as long as we were talking about stuff, didn't matter what it was, didn't matter what he said or anything else, it was always in my mind that this is my place as his grandson. And so whatever he had to say, and he was full of wisdom, and I don't want you to think he was, you know, some stupid guy or something like that. He wasn't. He was full of wisdom. He had a lot of great things to say. But there was no way that I was going to pick something out he said again and correct him on it. And so the real question I'm asking you here is, who do you think you are? And I'm not asking you how much you know. I'm not asking you what kind of knowledge you have, what kind of experience you've had. I'm not asking you any of those things. I'm asking you, who do you think you are? Because on a relational level, he's God. Right? And if we as human beings can respect one another, like, like for example, if a 12-year-old, 11-year-old kid could figure out that I needed to respect my grandfather, I think as people we can come into a place where we can respect our God. Right? That we can respect our Father, our Heavenly Father. And even if you think he's wrong and you think you're right, that you would have at least enough respect to listen to him, to hear him, and to receive it. You follow me? Okay. Because that's an attitude. That's a relational attitude. I can make this argument that you're ignorant, all right? But you really don't believe that. So I want to make this argument 
on a relational level, I, I do. I want to make this argument on a relational level that he at least deserves that. So he goes into this idea of who do you think you are to disagree with God? Because there are two sides to that. There is the knowledge-based side of it. There's the experience-based side of it. But then there's the relational side of it. And we fall short in both. <laughs> I mean, I just, just truthfully, we fall short in both sides of the argument, both sides of the understanding. But you think about we're, what, dying? Yeah. Enfeebled? Sure. That's who we are. We're ignorant? Yep. We're also persecuted sometimes. Exhausted. We're generally unequal to the task. That's just who we are. And dark trials and dark times in our life can cause us to distrust his purpose for our life. Those things can happen. But in the midst of all of that, there needs to be at least, and I hope there can be, at least enough of a relationship that we can dig deep and find a place of respect and trust for God calls us to a humble faith. A humble faith. Not a prideful faith. And there's two different things there. You know, the, you think about the word humble and what that means. Uh, people of humble faith can get a lot done without anybody knowing about it. They just can. A people of humble faith can, can, can get things uh, that, and, and see things and experience things and bring the miraculous before anybody even knows what happened. It just is. I mean, who was the humblest guy on the face of the earth? Moses. Yeah. Well, according to Moses, but yeah. <laughs> but he got it done, right? I mean, maybe Joshua wrote that. I don't know, but we attribute it to Moses. But he got things done, right? And And... Do you remember why he didn't go into the promised land? Anybody? Well, he, yeah, it wasn't somebody. He disobeyed, but you think about the disobedience, it was what? He Right. 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 He came out of his humble faith. For how long? Just a few seconds. But it was in front of a million people. Right? It was in front of every one of God's people. Then he was back again. But that was it. God calls us to a humble faith. Now, am I going to say you're going to be held to that same standard? No. You're not leading a million people. You're not Moses. Okay, we do things all the time that, you know, whatever, for whatever reasons. And I'm sure Moses did things too, but that moment was important because it was a complete break of his character. That's why it was important. And that's why it mattered. He broke his character. 
And, and that character was the humblest man on the face of the earth. That character was a humble faith before his God. That, that humble faith, though, was how he was getting it done. And without that humble faith, the things that happened in the wilderness, the things that took place in Egypt, the things that would, would take place as they moved across and into the promised land, they wouldn't have happened without it. That's what God used was that humble faith. So that's why it was important. The other thing is a sincere obedience. What's the difference between a sincere obedience and an insincere obedience? <laughs> Yeah, what is sincerity? What is sincerity? Yeah, it's true. You know, it's like, this is real. All right, so I'm going to obey. Now, can you obey but not like it? Sure, you know, you can. There's things that we do. You kind of grit your teeth and you obey. All right, I'll get it. But you know what? That's honest. That's honest. To grit your teeth and say, I'll do it. I don't like this, but I'm going to do it. That's, that's honest. To, to say things, I'm excited about this, I'm going to do it. That's honest. I hate this, I'm going to do it anyway. That's honest. What's not honest? Well, that, that's, that's disobedience, right. And, and so that, that's disobedience. But what, what's dishonest about obedience? would be like, oh, I love this. Yeah, more of this. When you're really thinking to yourself, I hate this. All right. Why is it important to have a sincere obedience? Why? Why is that important? How does that go with a humble faith? And what's good about that being who just who you are? Think about it. Why is that good? Why is that something he looks for? Why is that something he uses? How does that go with a humble faith? Okay. And what's our relationship with each other and with him? Follow it. Hmm? It is based on truth. In other words, like, but... But if I'm faking it in any way, shape, or form, in other words, you know, I've got a, my faith is something for show. How is that detrimental to my relationship with him? Who am I doing that for? I'm doing it for somebody else, not for him. What about that insincere obedience? Who am I doing that for? But not, yeah. We, we may obey for him, but we're showing it for everybody else. Go back to what I said about the tickets for the baseball game. Why did I tell you that? Why did I tell you that tonight? Was that for God or for me? For me. Right? Right. So, <laughs> so that was for me. Could I have just not told you about that and just gone about the business, which is what I do nine times out of ten? Yeah, of course I could have. And that's just a sincere obedience. It's a humble faith. When you begin to announce things and you begin to show things, you're, you're moving away from this. All right. So 
So I want to I want to just let that just kind of ruminate in there. Yeah, we don't have the experience or the knowledge base to really disagree with God. We just don't. We think we do, but we don't. And so it puts us into a bad situation because our words begin to proceed from ignorance. Our mistakes are from a lack of experience. I'm going to leave you with this thought. It's this, when we seek out God's presence, because I want God's presence. I do. I want I want God's presence. And when we seek out God's presence by man's reason, we make him more obscure. When we seek out God's presence by man's reason, we make him more obscure. Because it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. How do you seek God's presence? Tell me. Okay, how? I'm not going to make fun of anybody. I just I, I want to make this up. Bring this up, though. How do you seek God's presence? What's man's reason? What do they tell you to do? How about fasting and prayer and and spending time and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and there's A, B, C, and D. All right, sit quietly in a thunderstorm, right. But man's reason tells us these are the things you do. If you do these things, then, then you'll be in God's presence. Well, it, we're obscuring God's presence by doing that because it, God's presence, and I say this and people look at me like I'm completely crazy. He's always here, always He's always with us. He is always around us. He is always in us. Follow this for a second. By making things up, by creating scenarios, by somehow forcing a, a formula on how and when and by what circumstance we're going to be in God's presence, we obscure his presence. Because he's here. And that's just something we just need to practice living in. How? Just be. And if we can be in his presence, if we can live in his presence, not afraid, not trying to be something we're not, not trying to produce something, not trying to make something, not trying to manufacture something. Because we don't want to manufacture anything that's bought or sold or sell anything that's bought or manufactured or buy anything that's sold or manufactured or manufacture anything that's bought or sold. All we want to do is just be with them. Yeah. that he's with us 
do, everything we say, everywhere we go, every attitude we hold, he's with us. So you just gave a key, though, to practicing his presence. What is it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sincerity. Yeah, and, and you said something too, and and part of that sincerity, part of the simplicity of it is, is that again, you're busy about what? What are you busy about? My own business. Right. 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 That's what we're all doing. Yeah. What are we missing? Everything. Right. <laughs> we're missing everything. everything. Right. That's when you miss everything. Yeah. I flipped over to write something and my cheat sheet had your lesson from March twenty fifth and it says from uh, Luke twelve twenty, living in its presence continually, there's no barrier, dwell there, we're not ruled by tech. All right. What are the odds that we're turning that around? And there it is. What are the odds I'm teaching the same thing again in two weeks later? Two to one. Right. <laughs> I'd take those odds, yeah. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, I, and hopefully we're, we're kind of getting ourselves into a position where we can, we can dwell in his presence. Because to me, that, that's really what we're called to. That's who we are. That's our original purpose. What, what's the plan? Well, that is the plan. And, and God calls us to, you know, and there's, there's things along the way, and, and I don't want to obscure something I said earlier, and that's being a people of courage. I want to say that again so we don't lose that. But God calls us to that, I think. And part of being a people of courage is that we're people changing, we're people growing, we're people becoming. But practicing his presence is part of that becoming. I want more of that. I just want more of that. And you think to yourself, what's more important? Nothing. What seems more important? Lots of stuff. What really is more important? Nothing. I mean, Mary figured that out, right? She figured it out. We could figure that out. Let's pray. Father, I, I just ask you that uh, we find ourselves in your presence. I pray that we can set aside things right now, thoughts and all the zooming around in our brains. And just, uh, just uh, dwell right here and right now. Right here, right now. You're here. We're here. Yeah.
Thanks, Scott. I know I might have lost some of you Sunday when I was talking at the end. You probably don't even remember what I was saying, but, you know, I was talking about stars and trees and stuff. But there was something about what I was saying that fits into what's going on, and that's this, that God desires uh, unity with us. Abide in him, and he abides in us. A union with him, a restoration of that union, a restoration of that purpose, his plan, our lives together. So, Father, thanks. Thanks for your purposes and your plans over us. Thanks, God, that you desire to be with us, that we abide in you and you abide in us. Thanks. God, I say thanks for your presence, because that's your desire. I pray it be our desire. Give you thanks tonight pray that we would practice your presence more and more in the simplicity of what that is in our lives. If we ask it in Jesus' name, we agree by saying amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming tonight, and we'll see you again soon.